so this morning we are kicking off a new series. It is uh, on baptism. It is actually five weeks on baptism, which might seem like overkill for perhaps the simplest thing that we do in the church building. It's not much to it. Um, in fact, you might even know this already, but baptism as a word is, in fact, just a Greek word. It's a loan word. We just stole it from Greek, right? It's baptizo is the word in Greek, and they just kind of slid it over into English. Um, in fact, one of, the famous, uh, one of the famous things that one of our early movers and shakers in our movement of churches, Alexander Campbell, wrote his own translation of the New Testament. And instead of writing John the Baptist, he wrote John the Immerser. Because the word baptism means nothing more than to take something and to plunge it or immerse it or put it underneath water. If I were making it paraphrastically, I would just call it John the Bather, right? I mean, it's just a ritual bath. That's all it is. It's not in terms of, 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 a, of an event. It's not very complicated. But it, up until recent history, baptism was seen as a pivotal and transitional moment in the life of a person. We have these records from the ancient Christians, like the first few hundred years. And what we know about the ancient Christians of the first few hundred years is that baptism was so important, so holy, so special to them, that many people would wait until their deathbed to receive baptism because they were so afraid of being baptized and then sort of sliding back into their old ways of life. They took it incredibly seriously. But over the past few hundred years, I think in terms of our thinking of our church history and just the church in general in America, we've actually kind of begun to downplay and forget the power of baptism and what it does in our lives. Baptism is so often associated with salvation. In my experience growing up, I knew that if I wanted to follow Jesus, then I had to get wet. Why did I have to get wet? Well, because Jesus did it, and the apostles preached it, and the Bible says you're supposed to do it, and so you're supposed to do it. Like, that was kind of the extent of baptism. It was the initiation ritual, if you will, into the body of Christ. I knew I wanted to be a part of the body of Christ, so I just had to do this, and this was all, all it was to me kind of growing up. Um, and in other words, I think one of the things that we fail to do is to consider the ongoing effects of baptism. One of the things I've, I've learned um, from hanging out with some of my Reformed friends who do baptism completely wrong. <laughs> if you're new here, I, I shoot straight. <laughs> It's all right, it's all right. But I learned something from them that I think is just so amazing. When we would go into chapel, and we'd go to chapel when I would be up at classes uh, the past few years, we would go in and we would, you know, you'd pass the, the, the very similar things we have. You'd pass, you know, the, the Bible and you'd pass the, the bread and you'd pass the cup and there'd be things there that would say. But there's also this little bowl of water and I would see people walk by and put their hands in it. And they were doing that to remember their baptism. I really loved that. I was like, wow, that's, that's something I need to learn. I need to think more about that. I need to remember my baptism because my baptism wasn't just something that had an impact way back then, but rather it has ongoing implications for my life as a believer right here and right now. It's much bigger than just your first step into becoming a Christian. And so the next five weeks, we're going we're gonna to engage this. We're going to talk about how baptism and its ongoing effects invite us to something. It invites us to join the mission of Jesus. It invites us to join the community of Jesus. It invites us to join the body of Christ, integrated into the living being that we call Christ. It invites us to join the salvation. There is salvific power in baptism 
And finally, to join the way of Jesus. These five dimensions not only uh, occur at the moment of baptism, but rather they have these sort of ongoing implications in our lives. The way you live your life matters in light of the baptism that you have had. And so this is what we're going after today. So for this five weeks, my goal is not just to convince those of you who maybe haven't been baptized why you might need to be baptized, but also those of you who have been baptized to remember the power of that moment and to recognize the ongoing effects of that moment as you move forward. Our text today is Matthew chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, find Matthew chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, totally okay. Grab one. It looks just like this. It's where I will be. It's on page 808, right there, second column. This is the first time, if you were kind of just asked the question, when does baptism first show up in the, in the New Testament? This is where we would go. Right? This is the first occurrence of it. And it begins with uh, John the Baptist, you can kind of hear the implications there. Uh, it was very funny when, when I, did I say when Alexander Campbell translated it, he John the Immerser, like he used the word immerse in that, and that uh, actually is one of the reasons why no one bought his book, because everybody loves tradition, right? It's John the Baptist, baby. All right, anyway, look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, For the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. For this is what, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, John, sometimes called John the the forerunner, was the prophet who was going to herald the coming of the Messiah, right? That was what he was going to do. So central to his work of heralding the coming of the Messiah was this this process of taking people and bringing them into this this river, a large river that kind of ran ran as a border to Israel, bring them into that water and to, to, to immerse them. And this was a really common thing in the ancient world. Like John wasn't doing something and they're all standing around going, oh, what's this crazy guy talking about? Like they knew what baptism was. If you wanted to become, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, not only would you have to learn the law, not only would you have to be circumcised, but they would also put you through a baptism. The priests, every day as they went into the temple to make their sacrifices, would have a baptism, right? Just a ritual bath. In fact, we know that joining ancient Greek cults would include baptism. So baptism or ritual baths and immersion was a very common practice in the ancient world. So John is doing something. They all understand what John is doing. No one's like, this is strange, this is weird. Um, but there's something that is happening here. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I heard this growing up, I always kind of interpreted this as a, a come to Jesus moment, like a salvific moment. Like you need to turn yourself toward God and you need to get right with God. And, and so this is like becoming a Christian for the first time is the way we often read that. But that's not who John is speaking to. John is speaking to Jews. Jews are already implicitly the people of God. They don't need immersion, as it were, to become a part of the people of God. They already are the people of God, which begs the question, why is John baptizing people? Right? If it has nothing to do with salvation for John, then what does it have, what, what's happening? What, what, what has to happen? 
It becomes real clear here as, he, as, the, the, as Matthew tells us. He says, this is what the, uh, the prophet Isaiah told us would happen. Isaiah said that there's going to come someone who's going who's to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to make things ready for the Messiah to show up. If you imagine an important dignitary or a king or a president or somebody, somebody famous, maybe even just coming to our church, we would clean it up, right? We would make it really nice. We'd make sure everything was in his proper place. We would make sure the doors, like we would get ready for this person to come. And this is the idea that Isaiah is communicating. The Messiah, the Savior is going to come. God is coming, and we need to get ready for that. And here John is proclaiming that, but implicit as a part of that is, of course, baptism. Uh, Jesus preaches about getting ready all the time. He, he uses these, these phrases. He talks about, uh, about how we need to be servants that keep our candles lit. We are servants that need to stay awake. He tells stories about servants who are serving well and then servants who are not serving well. And they're, they're abusing their freedom. They're abusing their, their other brothers and sisters in Christ. They're being cruel to those people um, who are serving with them. And, and, God, and Jesus says, like, this is not, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of what I'm a part of, then you need to begin to prepare in your life and in the people around you. You need to be preparing the way for me, which is a way of saying that baptism for John in this passage is missional. And that is an, that's a word missional, might not be familiar to you, but what I mean by that is to say that it is directly focused at the, the, the mission that John has to do and the mission that Jesus has to do. Because to John's surprise, a few verses later, if you look at verses 13 through 17, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and says, uh, I want to be baptized, right? So verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Now, this is a significant moment, right? Jesus' Jesus' baptism is such a huge piece of our story that it's told in every single gospel and in Acts, right? Not every story is communicated in every gospel and, of course, re-communicated in the book of Acts. But Jesus' baptism is, which asks the question, why did Jesus need baptism? He certainly didn't have any sins he needed to repent of. He didn't... uh, he didn't have an old life of, of rebellion to God and sinfulness that he had to, to let go of. He did, however, have an old life, didn't he? He lived in Nazareth, and he served as a carpenter there, and he had family members. In fact, when he goes to Nazareth again, you remember, they're offended at him. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know all of his brothers? And here he's, he's stepped into our hometown, his hometown, and begun to preach and tell us that we need to get ready. Who does this guy think he is? And then later on, uh, as he's, actually this is, yeah, later on, uh, he's preaching and teaching, and, and Mary and his brothers show up, and they've heard what Jesus is doing, and they're like, Jesus has gone nuts. we got to reel him back in, and so they show up to reel him back in. So Jesus didn't have an old sinful life he had to cut ties with. 
to move forward. But Jesus certainly had a new mission in his life. Notice that at the end of verse 17, behold, the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then immediately in chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit right up out of that water. It's like Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him. He sort of has this big, big booming moment and then he's just, the Spirit just drives him out of the water and into the wilderness where he does battle with Satan. Then after that, he begins his ministry going throughout Galilee, preaching and teaching the coming kingdom of God. All of this is to say that when we talk about repentance, this isn't something Jesus had to do in terms of sin, but it is a transition in his life. Jesus is now, through his baptism, focused upon the mission that God has for him, which is to say baptism is not just a communicating our salvation or our community or our becoming a part of the people of God, but it communicates a new purpose and place in our life. Something has shifted and changed, and what has shifted and changed is not just we've given up sin and we've given up an old way of life, but now we have shifted and changed fundamentally and our purpose and mission in life is different. So often we forget that, that every single day you wake up as a baptized believer, as a member of the body of Christ, and you have a mission. Your mission is to declare the glories of God, to work out good works, right, so that people can see your good works and give praise and glory to God who is in heaven. I remember arguing at one time about the importance of baptism uh, with, this, with this woman at work a long, long time ago. And I remember saying, like, Jesus in this moment is fundamentally different. He had a completely different life. He is baptized, and now he has a completely new kind of life. And what is that life focused on? That life is now completely, 100% focused on proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So what do we see going on in baptism here that we can kind of glean from? Well, first... We see kind of the example of baptism, and we'll see this several times as we go through this series. It, 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 this is just to say it's very clear what the process looks like. Jesus is transitioning from an old way, an old purpose, an old mission in life to a new purpose and a new mission in life. And baptism is that moment. He goes into the water. He's immersed in the water. He comes up out of the water. Right, so so there's an example, a pattern that we see, and this is what we're after. Like we as Christians, we don't just get to make things up as we go. Right, we don't have that kind of power or permission. We look at the scriptures and say, well, what kind of things did they do? What did God tell them to do? How did they practice faithfully so that we can begin to look at that and implement implement that into our own lives, into our own churches, and live that same way? And so we see the example of baptism, what it looks like. But it isn't just what it looks like in terms of water and going under it, but also what it means. It means a new purpose for your life, a new mission for your life. There's a missional purpose built into baptism that we have to continue to remember. In fact, as Peter um, begins to preach in, and the apostles begin to move out and spread the good news of Jesus, They're keeping it within the Jewish community, and there comes a moment where God has this revelation he gives to Peter, and he says, you need to go and you need to preach to people who aren't just Jews. We need to start expanding and spreading it out. And Peter is amazed as he meets Cornelius in his house, and he sees the immense faithfulness that's sort of already there and alive in Cornelius, and he's trying to reason through this new thing that God is doing, where God is accepting everyone, not just the Jews anymore, but it's expanding to the ends of the earth and spreading out. 
And Peter has this moment of revelation. And it's interesting that he includes Jesus' baptism in his moment of revelation. Take a look. He says this in Acts chapter 10, verses 37. I'll actually start back at 34. I couldn't get it all on one slide. So um, once I hit 37, you can follow along. So, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's something to mull over. That is an amazing statement of grace. As the word that God sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So beginning with verse 37 here, now you can follow along. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. When was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit? At his baptism, right? He went about then doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So notice that. Notice that Peter, as he is reflecting upon this, this, this incredible moment where God has done something that they never anticipated, even though they should have the whole time, they didn't anticipate it, but God is expanding his grace to people they didn't think belonged. And in all of that, Peter stands back and he says, wow, God's mercy is on everyone who would fear and call to him. And then he begins to tell the story of Jesus. He says, well, John the Baptist preached, and then Jesus was anointed and filled with power, and he went out into the whole world, began to teach and to save those who were oppressed. This descending piece of anointment that we see here is such an important part of it. You might remember with me that the word Christ, or the word Messiah, right? Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, both mean anointed one. And what you would do in those days is you would anoint a prophet or a king. You set them apart. Like a prophet is now going to deliver God's words to God's people. Or the king is going to, well, and, and unfortunately, rule over God's people in that sense. Um, uh, kind of not in keeping with God's law. That's what they did. But either way, anointing was something that set somebody apart to do something special for God. So Jesus is anointed in the spirit. In his, as he comes up out of that water, anointed in the Spirit, and goes forth for that purpose. Isn't it so interesting then that when Peter is proclaiming the goodness of God for the first time, he's preaching, and he says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, all of these things that we've, you've heard are true. He's the Messiah. He's the one, and you crucified him. And they realize the goodness of God, and they realize the grace of God. They realize what they did to Jesus, and they ask the question, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? the anointing, the coming of the Spirit comes upon every single believer who goes into those waters. That Spirit anoints you, but he anoints you not just for salvation, not just for eternal life, not just for the kingdom of God. He anoints you for mission. He anoints you to send you out to become his voice so that Jesus, who went about healing and, and, and serving those who are oppressed by the devil, for God is with him, becomes a word that can be appointed to us. Not to say that you're going to go out and lay hands on people and deaf people will hear and blind people will see, but we become the agents of God's reconciliation. Paul says, God, I want Christ to fill up in my own body the things that were lacking in his. In other words, that there were people that Jesus didn't get to speak to, and Paul says, I want to go and to deliver them the message, the good news of the kingdom of God. Paul's baptism happened long, long ago, but he says that baptism has ongoing effects because I wake up every morning knowing because I'm a baptized member of the church of God, I have now a new purpose, a new mission, and that is to do good works, to 
give glory to God and to tell others about the grace of Jesus Christ. There is a missional purpose built into baptism for Jesus. And if it's built into baptism for Jesus, how much more for us? How much more for us? It's interesting that the last verse um, that we read there in, uh, in chapter 3 um, says the voice came from heaven. All of them record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record a voice coming from heaven. And then in some way saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What is it that pleased God? Right? Jesus isn't giving up sin. He isn't walking in the newness of life in that sense. So what is it that Jesus did that pleased God? Well, it was that Jesus has committed to the missional movement. Jesus has put on himself the same mission, the same purpose, the same plan that God has enacted in the world. Jesus says, that's my mission too. And his baptism symbolized it, and it walked with him every step of the way because the Spirit was with him every step of the way. Why was God pleased? God was pleased because Jesus was taking upon himself the same mission that God had. God will be pleased with us if that baptism that you experienced long ago has the ongoing effect of keeping you plugged into the mission of God. If we are no longer plugged into the mission of God, no longer serving, no longer seeking, no longer proclaiming, no longer loving, then that baptism that happened way back then was just a bath. That's all it was. It must have ongoing effects in our life. Our churches are incredibly guilty here. Incredibly guilty. We peep people in the water and we say, welcome to the family of God, right? And that was it. But what we need to communicate to our kids, especially as they are learning about baptism, is that this isn't a one-time moment of salvation. Now you go to heaven and not to hell. No, this is a step of allegiance toward God that is ongoing. And it includes what you do with the rest of your life. In that passage, um, when you're reading your Bible, especially the New Testament, the New Testament will often quote little pieces of Scripture from Isaiah or Jeremiah or somewhere else. The Psalms, things like that. And, and sometimes, because we're sort of, we sort of think we'll, we'll do whole quotes, we might think that's the whole of what the Bible wanted us to know. No, the reason that they're included in, in, the, in the New Testament is that it's supposed to send you back to the Old Testament so you could read the whole block, right? So it's an introduction to an entire quote. And so that little bit that we got that, that Isaiah said there's one that's to come who's going to make straight the paths of the Lord, that's a part of Isaiah 40, that's the beginning of Isaiah 40. But later on in Isaiah, we get a whole lot more, just a little bit further down in 40, I want to give it to you so you can see the kind of missional impulse that is built into all of Isaiah 40. Isaiah is telling a story and he says that there's a voice that's coming. He says, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with his mighty arm. See his reward is with him. His recompense, which we just don't use recompense enough. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs up in his arm. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. I love this because you can see how much is in here. There's a voice that is coming. 
And it's saying, see, here's your God, and then delivers this message. What happens when God comes? The sovereign Lord comes, and he offers judgment. He gives reward to those who have followed and kept his way. He gives punishment to those who have not listened, who have not had ears to hear, who have not had eyes to see, right? This is all what is coming. And then he brings this sweetness into it where he brings together all of his people and he tends them like a flock. Do you see the missional impulse that is a part of all of this? And then there's this beautiful poetic flourish at the very end of the chapter, which is something that you'll see... um, well, back when they had Christian bookstores, you'd see it on like plaques and junk like that. Christian kitsch, you could get this last little verse. But it's a beautiful little section. It's so lovely. And it ends with all of this sort of, this God stepping into the world with a new voice, calling people to recognize his grace and his judgment that we might both love and fear God, declaring God's willingness to, to sweep us up and gather us close like a, like a shepherd might to his flock. And he says, listen, don't you know, haven't you heard The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can even fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases power to the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And this is a word of encouragement, I think, to us, that while all of this sort of has its uh, initial moment in the waters of baptism, it has, this, it has a much greater declaration that has this every step of the way, every day of your life kind of thing that says, no, now that you have become a part of God's people, each day you have a new purpose and a new mission in life. That mission is to declare the glory of God and that when we run out of energy, God steps in and helps us to continue on that mission. That's why this gift of the presence of the Spirit is so important. In Jesus' life, notice, read your gospel and see how often Jesus mentions, or the, the author of the gospel mentions, the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus. The same Spirit that empowered Jesus to do all of the things that you know he did empowers you. Right, And it connects all of this in this waters, right? But it has this continual impact on our lives so that every single moment of every single day we are in a transition of looking more intently at God's mission to change, transform, and bring his grace to the world. So the question is, the question is, is God's mission your mission? Now, the question isn't just have you been baptized, The question is, have you remembered your baptism? Has it impacted your life since it happened? I was seven years old, so about almost exactly 30 years ago, I was baptized. Has it had that kind of impact that every single day I have actually thought, no, this is the mission of my life. I am turning myself toward God. That was a long time ago, I know, but my mission is still the same. I've still cut ties with the world. I've cut ties with the past life, and I am focused 100% on the mission of God. Have you remembered your baptism? And it's call for you to take on the mission of God. And if it hasn't, this is an amazing opportunity to renew that mission, to renew that commitment, not to get rebaptized, but rather to recognize, oh, that's right, and pick yourself up and step on the path and begin war- walking and working. If you need to talk to somebody about this issue, 
Our elders will be back there at the end of the service. I will be right here as we sing this song. And whoever you are comfortable praying with or talking with about this issue, we would love to meet with you. But we as the church of God must embrace our baptism and remember its power so that we are the people who have purpose, who have mission, and that that purpose and mission matches the purpose and mission of God. Let's stand as we sing.